So you'll recall the context of this particular passage. It doesn't occur in a vacuum. It occurs in the midst of the Gospel of Luke. There are events that have transpired. We have come to the place now where Jesus has left the Galilee ministry, has moved to the Judean ministry. It's much later in his, in his ministry. He's got three and a half years, give or take. This is clearly in at least the half year left. If not, within a matter of a month or two, he's going to be making his way to Jerusalem and he's going to be facing the cross. The nation has rejected him. He has gathered crowds everywhere he goes. He's done the Galilean ministry. He's walked away from them with, woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. The mighty works that have been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented, and you clearly haven't. He's now made his way down to the Judean region where they have heard about the things that he's done up in the Galilean, the northern region, but he's now down in the southern region and once again doing similar works and the response is similar. Folks are very interested. They, they want to see what he's doing. It's, it's the show, right? We want to come and, and watch. But no one's really repenting. There's no real change of heart. The only people that are actually experiencing a genuine change of heart are the tax collectors and the people who lead immoral lives. They come to him willingly. They want to hear this message of forgiveness that Jesus has. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they want nothing to do with all of these sinners. And that's the context. We start Luke chapter 15. It starts with this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He's supposed to be some prophet of God. He's supposed to represent God. He's, he's supposed to be the guy that's going to lead us closer to God. And look at him. They're eating with sinners, immoral people, tax collectors, traitors to the nation. So Jesus responds to this. The crowd is there. Obviously, the publicans and sinners, the tax collectors and sinners are listening, but also the scribes and Pharisees. And we won't re-preach those sermons, but Jesus gives three parables. The first one is the guy who had the hundred sheep, and he lost one, and he left the other 99, obviously with some other folks to take care of them, but he left them to go find that one sheep, no matter what it took. And he finds it, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he brings it home, and there's great rejoicing. And so there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Directed right at the scribes and Pharisees and, by the way, at the lost who are like the wandering sheep. Then he talks about the woman who had the 10 coins. And again, she loses one and she searches the house until she finds it and she rejoices and gathers the neighbors together and says, hey, rejoice with me, I found this. Again, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Again, directed at the Pharisees and scribes who aren't happy at all that sinners repent. They don't want anything to do with sinners. They're not sinners and they're not getting near the sinners and they're upset that Jesus is with the sinners. And of course, Jesus is trying to help these guys put together, one, they're sinners, and two, God loves sinners, just in case you hadn't noticed that. God offers forgiveness and redemption. That's what God is doing. In fact, there is great rejoicing in heaven over those who repent. And Jesus is looking at the scribes and Pharisees and saying, you aren't happy that the publicans and sinners are coming to me, but God is. 
And if you want to represent God and you want to claim to represent God, you need to get on the same page God is on. God is very happy that they're all repenting. You're not. So he now goes on and he gives this parable. Now, this parable is in many ways straightforward. I mean, we just read it. I would imagine all of you have probably read it any number of times. It is the longest of the parables, the most depth and instruction, and it presents a lot of detail. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of moving parts in this. Uh, it has three main characters. You've got the father, the two sons. This parable could easily be named, instead of the parable of the prodigal son, it could also be the parable of the elder brother, but it could also be the parable of the loving father. All three of those characters, they, they all play an extremely central and, and very prominent role in the parable. There is something to be said for each one of those folks. And so we are going to take our time here. We're not just going to go through this whole parable this morning. We're, we're going to kind of pull it apart. We're going to look at it. We're going to examine the parable from each person's perspective. It is valuable that we do this. Uh, I, I spoke to Greg Farr the other day, and he as you will recall, get up and preach while I wasn't here and he did the book of Jude. And he said to me, you know, I, he said it was tough. I, I actually had a whole lot more I wanted to say, but I only got one sermon and that's, there's the frustration, you know? So I'm very appreciative that I get to get up here again. We're going to, and we should, by the way, this, this passage is worth our time and effort to savor it. This is, a, this is a parable. This is probably the epitome, the, the pinnacle of the parables of Jesus. This is the parable with the most information and the most detail. And it's a very clear parable, and it addresses a number of clear issues that it's important for us to get. We don't want to hurry through this. We don't, we don't want to rush through this. So... Plus, it, it has the added benefit, you know, it's actually got three people, so, you, you know, you could have a three-point sermon. And, well, you know, if you've listened to my sermons uh, and you've been here for very long, you're well aware that I don't really have three-point sermons. And the reason for that, well, the first reason for that is because we don't actually talk in, in outlines. And the second reason is... Well, I don't really have a second reason because we actually don't really talk in outlines. We talk. We, we have conversations. And you will note that Jesus, as he presents this, and he presents any number of parables, he doesn't say, you know, a guy went out to sow seed. And the first ground he put the seed on, you know, I mean, that's, Jesus doesn't do that. He just talks. He talks about the four kinds of ground. There are four kinds of ground. You can count them. I don't think, even think he says there's four kinds of ground. He just talks. This father has two sons. You know, that makes three people, but you just, you just go through it, right? I mean, that's what we're going to do. But if you keep notes, you know, <clears throat> son number one, you know, if that does something for you, I don't, I, I don't know. That if, you're in a, if you're in like Ephesians and you're looking at a passage that maybe has a number of extremely rich and important theological truths, it might not hurt to, to point out you know, there's five truths in this verse. That'd be okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But 
when we're in a narrative, which this is, we're looking at a story here, I think it's better to just flow the narrative. Just, just, just go with this. So let's go. He has two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate that falls to me. Now, the culture in which this parable is occurring, there are perhaps some cultural assumptions that we, some we would make and some we would not necessarily make. First of all, the elder, there's two sons, and this is the younger son. In our day and age, if you have three kids or four kids or whatever, even two kids, when you die, it is customary in our culture that you divide up equally amongst your kids. That's just kind of how that goes. That was not the case in Israel. In Israel, it was the oldest son got a double portion of the inheritance. And in this case, since there's only two of them, that means the older son is going to get two-thirds of the father's inheritance. The younger son is only going to get one-third. So they would understand that. They would realize that this guy is asking for a third of everything that the father has. They would be astounded, by the way, that the younger son would ask this. This is not a request that you make. I mean... Give me my share of the estate. I mean, this is basically, give me my inheritance now, even though you're still alive. I don't really care that you're still alive. I want mine now. Uh, You know, that's pretty insulting, right? Uh, This, maybe if you have some... I don't know, business scheme you've got going and you're thinking, okay, dad, I, you know, I got this thing. I need to get it done. If I just had some resources and this is what I'm going to do and laid out the plans. And, you know, if I could say borrow on my coming inheritance to purchase this piece of land or something, you know, something, not is there any of that. In fact, if you, we just read the parable, right? He has clearly no plans whatsoever except to go out and just spend the money wherever. There's no business plan here. There's no, there's no plan at all. This is the family business. The reason why, under the Old Testament law, the reason why you gave a double portion to the son was because the land was dispersed to the various tribes and the, and the various clans and then the various families, and your land was your possession. This is why we kind of glaze over at the genealogies and think they're nothing but a bunch of names that you know, make you tongue-tied. To them, they were crucial. The genealogies are what laid out what land you got. It was important. You needed to keep track of who was related to who and how this all went. And, you know, like the story of Ruth, right? She comes back. She she married an Israelite. He died. She comes back into the land. Boaz wants to marry her. And before he can marry her, well, there's this land issue. Her husband owned land. And so... The nearest kinsman, which wasn't Boaz, he goes to him and says, hey, are you going to redeem the land? Are you going to keep it in the family, basically? Because that's what you need to do, keep the land in the family. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Well, just realize that you've got to take Ruth and you've got to raise up children to the guy who died. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Okay, so that's how this worked. So when the youngest son goes up and says, hey, I want my third, this is, you're taking a third of the family business. The whole idea was to keep the family business going. I mean, there were responsibilities here. This was the family land. You were to run a business. This is a way to build wealth. Everyone was more prosperous if the family business prospered. 
So everyone had an obligation. And everyone just understood. You grew up understanding that the oldest guy is going to get a double portion of what the rest of us get. But frankly, all of us are going to help build the family business. We're all going to work for the family business if that works for us. And you know, everyone is working on this. We understand that if you have like the nest egg and everybody kind of keeps it going, this is going to be good for everybody. Not this guy. Not, not this guy. He, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the family business. He doesn't care about his father, who, by the way, I want to take a third of your wealth, which you're using. I mean, his father's still alive. It's like, I still get the family business to run. I don't care about that. I just want my third, and I want it now. Well, what about your older brother? You know, he's going to have to run the family business, and you're going to take a third of it. It's going to make it more. I don't care. I just don't care. I, I am, I'll tell you what I care about. Me, that's what I care about. I don't care about you. I don't care about my brother. I don't care about anything. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, you, you can't get out of this place soon enough so that I can get my stuff. What a guy, right? What a guy. I, there were social norms that he is supposed to be keeping, and he's not keeping them. He is not doing what would be expected of him. And he's deliberately not doing it. He doesn't like it being expected of him. He doesn't want it to be expected of him. He just wants to go out and do whatever he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. That's what the parable is all about. All they care about is me. I want my happiness. I'll, you give me that money, I'll show you all how to spend money. Let me tell you right now, I know how to spend money. I'll be the happiest guy around. I mean, that's, I want freedom. I want independence. I want to, I want to do what I want to do. I want to be my own boss. And I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Particularly my father, who's got all kinds of rules and restrictions. None of that. I don't want any of that. Just give me mine, and I'll get out of here. Wow. Um, wow. I mean, this is just like, huh, you know, how are you supposed to respond to this? What is wrong with you? You know, I mean, it's, it, it would be completely appropriate to just tell him to go away, not give you a dime. In fact, we might go out and rewrite the will and not give you anything. You know, I mean, there, this is just bad. This guy should not be acting like this. The only way, by the way, that this can actually be fulfilled is to break up at least a third of the family business. If the father's going to do this, that's what he's going to have to do. Everybody's standing there. I mean, the tax collectors, the, the immoral people, not to mention the scribes and Pharisees, everyone is listening to this request going, no, no, this, no one is going to do this. This is bad. Nobody's going to honor this request. But it goes on and says, so he divided his wealth between them. Astoundingly, the father does it. Oh. Okay, um, if this is what you want to do, if this is what you're determined to do, if you are so set in your ways, um, okay, fine. Now you, what other response is he going to give? Because if he just, if he gives a response of no, clearly the son has a rebellious spirit, he has a rebellious attitude, he has a, a very foolish attitude. Uh, I'm going to just go do what I want and I don't care what anybody thinks. Okay, that is a terrible way to go through life. The father is under no obligation, socially, legally, morally, whatsoever. Um, but, and we'll talk a lot more about the father next week. But the implication is, 
Obviously, the father represents God, Christ, represents you know, God's perspective on this situation. And God's perspective is, look, if sinners want to go out and sin, okay. You know, I mean, God lays out how it ought to be. God instructs us and guides us, and God is there to forgive us. But the fact is, if you're determined to go sin, well, okay. That's how that's going to go. If that's what you're determined to do. God has the power and the authority to prevent sinners from sinning, but God doesn't restrain the rebellious. Just look at our world. Look what people do. God is offering forgiveness. God is offering redemption. God is offering to people the ability to make their lives right with him. But if you're determined to not do that, well, okay. God just like, okay. You want to take the resources that God has, the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the finances, all the things that God has given you, and you want to just use it to go out and to be the most wicked person you can be, well, okay. And you might think that that's terrible. You might think that that's awful. You might actually think that maybe God should restrain people just a little bit more. You might want to keep reading the account. Come to find out by, instead of restraining this guy and keeping him there and forcing him into a place where he has to become even further and further and further rebellious, uh, instead by just, okay, you want to be in charge of your life? Give that a go. Get back to me. See how it goes. I mean, that's what's happening here. All right. You want to do what you want to do? Go for it. So he does. And what does he do? Well, not many days later, the son gathers everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. So he liquidates, obviously, any kind of assets that he has. He either takes out a loan on them um, or he outright sells them. And he liquidates and turns it into cash. And then he says, I am out of here. I am going to go somewhere where no one knows who I am. No one knows my name. No one has any idea, any kind of obligations that I might have. No one is going to look at me and go, hey, does your father know what you're doing? I'm going to go where no one's ever heard of my father. No one knows who my father is. No one knows who anybody is that I know. I am going to go to the far country. I am going to get away from here. I'm going to get to a place where I can just do what I want and be my own man and act however I want to act without any accountability to anyone. Free. I'm going to be free at last. And rich, too. I got all this money. Woohoo! Okay, okay, all right, well, you know, the account goes on, right? I mean, how many, how many of you have talked to teenagers who have this exact attitude? I mean, they just have this attitude. They're like, they cannot wait to get out from under the thumb of their parents so they can get out there and do whatever they want to do. Yeah. Okay, okay. So how does this go? He does. This is what he does. He, he does. He gets the money. I mean, okay, there you go. You got the money. It's all yours. Go, take it. And off he goes. And he does. He does go to the far country. And there he spends the money like water. I mean, he squanders it. He just spreads it far and near and on anything he wants. And whatever, whatever catches his eye, he just spends it. He just spends the money on whatever makes him happy. 
He indulges his every desire, whatever wish I have, whatever, whatever. I, he bought friends, he bought girls, he bought whatever he wanted to buy. He just, he just spent the money. He literally squanders it. I mean, which means he just spread it around everywhere. Maybe somewhere out there he might have noticed that, you know, hey, my funds are getting a little short. You know, look in the bag and it doesn't quite have as much in it. But by that point, you know, you, I mean, what are you going to do, right? You can't, it's not like you can go home. And I got all these friends. And if I get it stingy now, my friends might leave, you know. So I've got to keep my friends happy. I mean, after all, I bought and paid for them all. Uh, so he went till he spent everything. He, he spent it all. Now, when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country. You know, there's a reason why wise people have a little bit of funds set aside somewhere that they just kind of leave for a rainy day. Because sometimes it rains. You know, there are days that things happen. There are times in life where you just... You'll hit a rough spot. Things will happen that you did not foresee. Circumstances will occur. War breaks out or a famine shows up or a tornado goes through or, or there's a flood or who in the world knows what? There's all kinds of things that can occur in this world. And if you have wisdom, it would be really important for you to have set aside a small or maybe large amount of funds that you could tap into during those times of difficulty. Well, this guy had that. A little bit ago, he just spent it all. And guess what? Now the time of trouble has come. Now the time of hardship has come. And you could say, well, it wasn't my fault. And you're right, it's not your fault. The famine occurred. It just occurred. A severe famine, by the way. A famine that was really, really pressing. Uh, we, we don't know what that's like. We have no idea what a, what a real famine is. We may. I, you know, it's possible. It might occur to us in this lifetime, but not, not yet. I don't you know. Your refrigerator, probably much like mine, has got all kinds of food in it. You've got a pantry next to it with food in that. And if you don't, just go to Walmart, and they've got all kinds of food down there. Uh, although it was kind of interesting. You know, there are moments here with the snowstorm and with the pandemic. There were moments you could walk into Walmart and kind of go, ooh, you know, the shelves are not all full here. There are actually shelves that are empty. Well, imagine walking into Walmart and every shelf of the place is empty. In fact, imagine going to Walmart and the doors aren't even closed. They're just hanging open and you walk in there and the reason is because there's not a thing in there anymore. That's famine. That's, that's what it looks like. May we never live to see such a day. But these folks saw that day. It, it, the famine has struck. Everyone is now hungry. Uh, goods now become enormously scarce. So he began to be impoverished. That is, he, he's not just suffering a little bit. I mean, he's impoverished. He's got nothing. He's lacking the, the basic necessities of life. He doesn't have any food. He, he is now at a place where he is destitute. So what does he do? Is this the moment? Not yet. Not yet. This is not, he hasn't hit the bottom yet. You'd think he would, but nope, nope, nope. Not, I am not going to tell you, the last thing I'm doing is going home and eating humble pie. That is not happening, no siree. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He finds some total stranger who, who knows whether they, I don't know, whether they partied with him or didn't or, or who knows. But 
Someone in that country, he attaches himself to them. I mean, he basically just clings to them. One of those please, please, please moments. You know, I, I just, somebody, please do something for me. So the guy's like, okay, all right. And if you're, tell you what, I, I do have this job for you. So he sends him out into his field to feed the pigs. If you thought shepherds were, you know, low on the totem pole there when we went over the guy who was the shepherd, okay, even amongst the Jews, there was lower than shepherds, although the low, the shepherds are pretty low. But the feeding of the swine is considerably even lower than that. And that's because in Israel, you weren't supposed to have swine. They were unclean. You didn't touch them. You didn't eat them. You didn't get near them. You didn't have anything to do with them. I mean, you don't, there's no pigs. Don't touch those things. And now, here this guy is. He's hired himself to this person. And you can imagine the conversation, some version of, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Okay. I got these pigs out here in the back of the field. You know, they smell the high heavens, but go out there and and feed them. He's Jewish, right? He's never been near a pig in his life. He comes from a wealthy Jewish family. And you just read the parable. His father's got servants and fatted calf that can be killed at a moment's notice. This is a guy with a lot of money. He's grown up pampered. Never seen a pig, let alone eat one. And now he's out there taking care of the pigs. Um, I was just out in Utah. One of the things they do out there, uh, the camp, because you know they have the campers and they have it all summer and they have a lot of food. And once you serve the food... You can't do anything with it. It's, it's just trash. And so they have a bucket. And when the kids bring their trays up, all the food goes into the bucket. And they take a bucket, and they get down, and they feed it to these two pigs. And you can go down and see the pigs. And you can tell long before you get anywhere near the pigs where the pigs are. It's like, woohoo, okay, I guess the pigs are this way. I mean, they're pigs. They're filthy. They smell. So... This guy gets sent in there to feed him. This is bad. And there he is sitting out there feeding the pigs. And you think, well, this is as bad as it gets. No, actually, it gets worse. It's even worse. He gets to the point where he is so hungry, he would eat gladly, have filled his stomachs with the pods that the swine were eating. And nobody was giving him anything. He couldn't eat what the pigs were eating. One, the pigs were eating it. And two, uh, you just can't swallow it, right? I mean, you can't, you can chew on this stuff for quite a while. It's pig slop. He's literally looking at the pigs and saying, the pigs are doing better than I am. The pigs eat better than I do. They've at least got something to eat. I have nothing to eat. And I can't eat what they're eating. I can't chew it. I can't digest it. This, this is a guy who's now, he's now at the bottom. I mean, He's, he has hit the bottom. No, no one's, even the guy who hired him doesn't care about him. Even the guy that hired him isn't giving him enough, if he's giving him anything, is not giving him enough to, to, to feed him. I knew a guy who ended up living on the street. And I had a conversation with him and, and said, uh, you know, how did you end up actually living on the street? He said, well... He said, I had a drinking problem, and so 
I was a poor steward of any kind of wealth that I had, and plus I had difficulty keeping a job. And you would go to the people that you know, and you would basically lie to them. You would tell them, oh, I'm going to do better. I'm going to fix up my life. If you just give me 20 bucks, I'd, you know. And he said, what happens is there comes a moment. The sun is going down. It's 8, 9 o'clock at night. You're standing on the sidewalk. You have gone through the list of everyone in the world you know. I mean, we're talking not, not, not your mother and father, not your brothers and sisters or cousins. You've already gone through all of them. We're talking about you're down to classmates. We're down to the guy you sat next to in English. You know, we're, we're down to the guy you, you uh, wrestled with in gym class. Anyone who knows you. You've gone through that whole list, and there's one left, and you knock on the door, and, and you give them your spiel, and they're like, I'm so sorry, and they close the door, and he said, you stand there. And you realize there's no one left on this list, and you're alone. He said, it's the loneliest night you've ever had in your life. You literally spend the night on the street because there's nowhere to go. That's this guy. That's where he is. So what happens? Praise God for the buts and the Bible, right? But when he came to his senses, he finally, like, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing? What? What? I, I have been nothing but a total selfish jerk. I have offended my father and my brother and my town, and I have broken all of the social norms. I have exploited my father's generosity. I, I, I didn't build up my community. I had a position. I had a place where I could have been a part of the community. I could have used my wealth to support the community. I could have, I could have continued to support the servants that, you know, the household servants that my father had employed, you know, the various employees that we had in the family business. I took a third of my father's wealth. He had to let people go. He couldn't pay him anymore. All this wealth that I could have used to build up my own community to, to shop at or to trade with my neighbors and, you know, to support what was going, I, I took all that money right out of there and just spent it down here. I, I enriched strangers with it. What have I done? What have I done? This is repentance. This is what it looks like. He is going to show us what it is when you actually awaken to who we are before God. To, uh, this is how you get a right relationship with God. Because obviously the father stands in the place of God. And this guy stands as the sinner. He's the guy who has just, like insanity has set in. And he has gone out and just acted in a total selfish manner without any regard for the consequences of his actions. And he's just gone out and done whatever he wanted to do. And now it's all caught up with him. And so here's what he says. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I'm dying here with hunger. 
hired men, by the way. These aren't any of the family servants. These, these weren't the employees of the family. These were just the guys who were the day laborers. Remember the guy who went out and hired laborers to work in his field at 6 in the morning? And then he went back at 9, and there were still some guys standing around, and so he hired them. And he went back at noon, and there were still some guys standing. He went back at 3, he went back at 5, and there were still guys standing there. He's like, why are you guys still standing there? Like, oh, I can't go home and tell the wife I didn't get any work, you know? I mean, I got to just stay here till, till everybody goes home, and then I'll go home. It's like, well, go in the field, and I'll, uh, and I'll pay you. I'll just pay you what, what's right. Okay, those are day laborers. That's what he's talking about here. These, these aren't people who are hired every day. They're just occasionally hired. He's looking at these guys and saying, my father was the kind of guy that made sure these people had enough. They had enough to eat. Even them. Not the household servants, the hired servants, the day laborers have enough. What in the world am I doing here? Uh, uh, this is what I will do. I will get up and go to my father. I am going to act on my convictions. I'm going to actually do what's right. I'm not just going to sit here and feel sorry for myself. And I'm just going to sit here and go, oh, woe is me. Life is unfair. Isn't it all so terrible? No, I am going to go face my father. I'm going to endure the embarrassment and the shame and the humiliation and I'm going, to, I'm going to go see him. I've embarrassed him. I've acted in a way that is embarrassing to me. And I, and I put him in an impossible position. And I'm sure that by giving me the funds, he lost reputation in the town. And I'm going to go see what I can do. To, I'm going to go face the music. This is true repentance. He says, this is what I will say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm going to speak publicly and, and acknowledge that I have not just sinned against my father. I've sinned against the very laws of God. What I have done is, is not just breaking social norms. I have done wrong. I have sinned. I am going to confess that to my father and to anyone else who will listen. I'm not going to minimize what I've done. I'm, I'm not going to make excuses. In fact, what I'm going to say is that I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I am going to eat humble pie and ask for seconds. There is not going to be any kind of prevaricating, any kind of, oh, life is not fair. I'm back, but, you know, you didn't really treat me right either, you know. You should have divided the inheritance 50-50. It's not fair. My older brother gets two-thirds. And I wouldn't have done this, you know, if you'd have just been a little nicer to me. He's, he's not coming back with any of that. He's, he's not coming back whining and complaining and groaning. He's not going to come back and go to his father and say, well, if I've done anything that was caused you to feel bad. I just want you to know I feel bad about making you feel bad. Yeah, I mean, if I did anything. You ever got those apologies? You ever watch people make those apologies? This isn't an apology. You're accusing the person. Well, I, I'm sorry if what I did made you feel bad. That's not an apology. And that's not what this guy is doing. It's not what he's acting like. Instead, he is coming back and saying, it is me. I have done wrong. And I am here to 
take whatever consequences you have. I am no longer worthy to be a son. I am no longer worthy to be a part of this family. I have given up all rights, all obligations that are in any way owed me. I ask for just the smallest mercy that you would extend literally to a total stranger who just works for you on a daily basis. That's all. That, that'll be fine. Uh, I'll, I'll take that. I'm owed nothing else. This is repentance. This is what it looks like when we come to God and we want to really get things right with God. It's not, there's no self-justification here. He's not coming up with a single excuse. This is him. This is all him. This is what it is to see salvation. This is when the sinner wakes up. This is when we wake up. When we come to God and like, I, you owe me nothing, Lord. Nothing. And yet, you gave everything. I, here I am. Here I am. And of course, we can't neglect, although we'll look at it in detail later next week. But we can't neglect what happens, right? He, so he gets up and he goes to his father. And while he's still far away off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Of course he did. He's his father. This is the heart of God. Any sinner that will come to God will be forgiven. He'll be forgiven. This is the God we love. This is the God we know. This is the God we serve. This is the God we need to introduce the world to. They need to figure out this is who God is. So that they can come to him and receive the exact same kind of forgiveness. This guy, you know, the father, he's not just going to, you know, say it's all okay. He's going to put the ring on his finger and the, and the robe and kill the fatted calf and have a celebration. I mean, this is like, this is great. Because that's who God is. But just come to him. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by this parable. We can look at that prodigal son, and we all know that there are places in our hearts where we certainly can sympathize with his attitudes and his actions, and that if we're honest, we completely understand how it is he acted in such a way, even if we haven't acted quite like that. Lord, you love us, and you forgive us, and you are kind to us, and so we too are amazed. Thank you, Lord, for being the God you are. May we share with the world. Give us the wisdom to know how to get the message to the world that this is the God you are. Forgiveness is available to those who will just repent. Help us, Lord, to share that with kindness and compassion to the people we know. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.